This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Boyd Chastain. Today I am resharing an episode that I recorded and published in September of 2021 with Megan O'Giblin. Megan is the author of the book, God, Human, Animal, Machine, Technology, Metaphor, and the Search for Meaning. I really loved this book when it came out because it touched on so many things uh, that I find fascinating, like uh, our concept of metaphor and how it impacts the way in which we view the world and interact with the world and how it informs things like our religion, uh, our spiritual practices, uh, our worldviews, even if we don't use spiritual terminology or are part of a spiritual community or anything like that. Uh, In Megan's case, she attended uh, Moody Bible Institute and later uh, left the Christian faith but then started to discover similarities between Christian prophecy and secular transhumanism, like like those that she found in the works of Ray Kurzweil, who uh, is a fellow at Google um, and is the early propagator of the idea of the singularity, which is this concept that humanity and technology or AI will one day merge into some future type of thing. Uh, This is... A really fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Um, You can also find Megan's regular writing over at Wired, uh, where she writes the cloud support advice column for Wired.com. Links to that will be in the show notes, as well as links to buy the book that we discuss. Um, The the links in the show notes will also support this show. Um, And I want to talk a little bit also about how you can support this show. Uh, you can do that over at postevangelicalpost.com, which is the Substack newsletter that helps to fund this work regularly. Um, you can now join at just $5 a month or $50 a year. I previously had a different uh, pricing model. Scrap that at the beginning of the year. Only $5 a month or $50 a year. And you can get ad-free podcast feeds, additional writing, other perks that you can read about over at postevangelicalpost.com slash support. One of the unique selling points, I believe, is my model of building a little bit of uh, economic reparations directly into that direct support of me. I take 25% of net proceeds and donate those to the Religious Exemption Accountability Project, which is a uh, wonderful organization that helps uh, queer students that are facing dis- discrimination on Christian campuses, as well as an anti-racist education group called White Homework. Uh, That is 
one way in which I have built directly into my my own business model from from the beginning of the post evangelical post. Uh, Starting in starting in 2021, I launched this model where I donate 25% of these net proceeds uh, to really put my money where my mouth is. Um, so you can go support me, and by supporting me, support that additional work of those groups that evangelicalism has harmed. Um, you can read all about that over at postevangelicalpost.com/support, and you can also find show notes and a whole bunch of other stuff over there. Finally, one more thing, I will be appearing in person with Bradley Onishi from Straight White American Jesus, as well as Tim Whitaker from the New Evangelicals on February 11th in Philadelphia. You can find tickets to that event at postevangelicalpost.com events. You can follow the link there to get the tickets that are linked on Eventbrite. You can use the code 50 at checkout to get 50% off, though that is a limited quantity. So please go and purchase tickets. Come see us in person. Talk about what Christian nationalism has to do with deconstruction. It's going to be a really fascinating conversation. We're also going to talk about Brad's book some more. You can also look in the back in the feed a little bit to see my recent episode and my interview with Brad about his new book, Preparing for War. So please come see me and Brad and Tim talk about his book and and much more in Philadelphia, February 11th. Check out postevangelicalpost.com slash events. All right, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest today is Megan O. Giblin, author of the new book, God, Human, Animal, Machine, Technology, Metaphor, and the Search for Meaning. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I'm uh, really excited to talk to you because I think we have a lot of shared interests, namely religion and technology and this past experience that we both have in types of fundamentalism, which I think is something that, especially when you are seeking out commentary about technology, it doesn't seem to be always like a default type of experience. Yeah. But on on the show, I do like to start with each person's beginning. So just to get a background for yourself, where did you grow up and what was your initial exposure to religion and Christianity like? I grew up in a very your standard evangelical slash fundamentalist family. I grew up mostly in the Midwest. My family moved around a lot. We were in Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois. And yeah, I was homeschooled along with them, the oldest of five kids. We did like the standard Becca mm. school curriculum and social life was mostly church and homeschool group. And yeah, I guess it's remarkable to think about it now, but like everybody I knew, everybody in our social circle, everybody in our extended family believed essentially what we did. Mm. Didn't have a lot of connection with people who had different worldviews. I think we had neighbors who were Catholic who we prayed for their salvation about <laughs> it as as much exposure to outside beliefs as I got as a kid. Mm. And yeah, and then I went to Moody Bible Institute when I was 18 and studied theology and was exposed to I don't know. For me I felt like that was the first time when I really read the Bible. And I don't know if this is common of other people's 
experience with evangelicalism, but it was a lot of like the sermons and the youth groups I was exposed to. It was all the theological education that we got was not particularly in depth. And just thinking about theodicies and things like that for the first time at Bible school is really eye-opening. And yeah, I had a great experience at Moody in many ways. I, I haven't really been back since I was there, but it's it was really, a, it was a great education in a lot of ways. I think I was exposed to the Bible and to theological doctrine, granted in a very narrow sense, at a level that I hadn't been before. And it was a very intense academic environment also. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like to experience that, like a, a place like Moody, which is in uh, downtown Chicago, but it also being like, as you mentioned, like a sort of narrowly fundamentalist type of place. I contrast it with just personally, I went to Indiana Wesleyan, which is in Marion, Indiana. And there's not like, even though there's the town, it doesn't have any direct relationship to, to the town itself, really. You can very easily stay just within this little microcosm of the campus. Was that more of a liberal arts college? Yeah, yeah. It did also have a strong nursing program and things like that and, okay. and some other sciences. But yes, it was a general liberal arts college with somewhere around 50 majors or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the thing about Moody that maybe, I don't know if I would say it still makes it distinct, but it's definitely maybe becoming a rarity among Bible schools. And they take pride in this, is that it's like everybody who's there is going into ministry full-time, basically. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's this is still the case, but when I was there, they called it the West Point of Christian service. Uh, <laughs> we were like soldiers being prepared for battle. And yet, so there was that, that really intense and really insular community on campus. The, the buildings, it was like right in the middle of the city. And we were right on one hand smack in the middle of the Gold Coast, which is like where all these huge luxury apartments were. Yeah. And like a couple blocks away, you can go down to Michigan Avenue and Oak Street where there's all these luxury boutiques. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of campus was when I was there, it's no longer there, but the Cabrini Green Housing Project, which was the largest housing project in Chicago. So really positioned in this sort of like purgatorial strip of land between these two very different sides of the city. And the college itself was, I think in a lot of ways, it was really insular. There was all these, like we had tunnels going from the dorms to the classrooms. Like you could technically go for your whole semester there and not go outside. <laughs> you could travel the whole campus subterraneanly. And I remember talking to somebody fellow student like toward the end of my first semester there and he was like yeah I actually haven't left campus oh my gosh <laughs> wow it was a lot of people who had come this, a lot of the students that come from the hinterlands that come from Iowa or Oklahoma or these like really rural places so I think it was ultra shock oh definitely a lot of and yeah those tunnels are strange I, <laughs> I worked for about nine or ten months at the Lifeway Christian store Oh, um, yeah, it's so yeah. <laughs> I was just working there part time, but I would have to take like a like a a moving pallet full of the books that I worked in receiving in the bookstore. <laughs> oh, okay, and and so I would go pick up the incoming books from the post office, and I'd have to navigate around all the student population <laughs> that was going to school or to class or to the cafeteria or something. It's just, it is like a very interesting. <laughs> 
architectural thing. I don't know, just as an experience. (laughs) Yeah. Was that after you went to college? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually, I had already left evangelicalism, at least belief wise, but we had started attending uh, a pretty fundamentalist church in the Rogers Park neighborhood. And just as a result of the recession, I was laid off from looking for work and someone (laughs) was able to help me find at least some work there for a brief period. So this was, yeah, this was during the recession years. So that was after I had left. I was there in the early 2000s. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And which is crazy now. It's like the, the, all the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 stuff is coming around. So that was when I was there. That was the start of my sophomore year was 2001. Mm, Okay. Yeah. But I imagine the culture on campus is much the same as when you were there. there. Yeah, I got, I, I think the thing that I found really interesting too about Moody were all of these sort of interesting theological debates. Like there was all these different schools and different factions of mm-hmm. people, both students and professors had like very strong beliefs about like things that I think most people on the outside of fundamentalism would probably not think was a big deal. Like whether the big thing when I was there was like whether you believed in predestination or not. Yeah. Yeah. You can totally get get in the weeds with that stuff on that, on this show. So yeah, I went to an Armenian school, uh, okay. a Wesleyan Armenian. So learning about new Calvinism and stuff was a, was a bit of a shock uh, for me in the following years. But but Calvinism is very, as you write about it in your book, it can, it's a very compelling sort of theology, at least from what it presents itself to be as like a very logical type of way to think about things that very was actually really popular around that time when you were in school. I was going to say, I, my sense, and this is, uh, you know, totally my subjective perspective being there, but my sense was that Moody was largely Arminian when I was there, but that there was this sort of growing underground of new Calvinism that was like very, it seemed very provocative at the time. And mm-hmm. there were a couple uh, professors on campus who were very much on board with that and they were controversial. But yeah, it was around the time, I, I think I want to say like Piper's book, Desire and God had just come out. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot, there was, I don't know, it was just something that was like in the air at the time. And it was very logical it was very like it was a very like masculine doctrine the version that I was introduced to it was like a lot of men who were into it and it was it struck me as more like intellectually rigorous than a lot of the theology that I had studied thus far and I think in hindsight what I found attractive about it was that sort of like intellectual rigor and just like the excitement that these were like these life and death debates people were having in the underground cafeteria, people would be like there up until the dinner hour closed, debating predestination, debating all of these sort of very fine points of those systems. But yeah, but that was also part of my downfall from the faith too, because I, I think that I was forced to really think about things like salvation and hell and all of that, like at a very, I think like the stakes became very high for me and forced me to realize that I was, I disagreed with a lot of what was being taught or I don't know if I would, I don't know if that's even right to say I disagreed with that. I just felt like it was unjust 
the sort of divine justice that I was exposed to, which was this very like nominalist God, God's ways are sovereign and we don't have to understand it. We can't, we don't ask questions about it. It doesn't have to appeal to our human morality. Mm-hmm. It's just how things are. And if you can't stomach it, then too bad. And, and yeah, so I started really questioning my faith and struggling with doubts and feeling like I couldn't really talk about it there because I don't know. I, I think I, w- I had a lot of fear about ex- exposing the fact that I was having doubts. I had a few professors sniffing me out in my papers. I was saying some things that were like maybe unorthodox or that mm. revealing my underlying questions. And I remember one professor said, oh, come talk to me after class. And I never did. I was terrified. Yeah. But yeah. And then, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. I was just relating to that. That's a very, I think that making expressing doubts verboten at a college where you're supposed to do those things is yeah. really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It was difficult. And it was like a fine line too, because you can like have these doctrinal debates where you say, I'm going to play the devil's advocate. What if somebody who I was trying to evangelize objected in this way? But then if there's people can sniff out that there's like a personal stake in that, I think as well. So yeah, I guess long story short, I ended up leaving moody at the end of my second year there i went back to michigan and lived with my parents which was difficult and i also ended up after this which i haven't really written about this but i ended up going to ecuador on a short-term missions trip just because i don't know i was confused at the time i was still thinking maybe i could reconcile myself to the faith and had thought about missions during the time I was at Moody. I went and volunteered at HCJB Radio in Quito, Ecuador. I was there for three months and things got progressively worse there in terms of like my own faith and my own doubts. And so I ended up just, it's crazy to think about this now, but I left that position at the end. It was a three-month position. I left and I moved to a city 10 hours south, Cuenca, where I didn't know anybody. And I got a job teaching English and I got an apartment. And that was the first time I was on my own um, Mm -hmm. away from that whole culture I'd grown up in. And I think in hindsight, maybe on some unconscious level, that mission trip was my way out or I saw it as like an escape. If I can just get down there, I can like... Gotcha. Yeah. life for myself. So yeah. That's that, that was where I ended up leaving the faith in Ecuador. And then I came back to Chicago and ended up just, I had a lot of years there where I was just like bartending and waitressing and wanting to write, but being too afraid to take a writing workshop. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I think that was a really dark time for me. And I've written about that a little bit. Yeah. That, that comes across in some of your essays and it, I'd like to backtrack a little bit in your, at least in your story timeline to one of the things you, you talk about in your book in a couple of different ways is whenever you find patterns uh, that related to you personally. And actually one of the things I did while reading your book was find patterns in, in your story and mine. And one of them is that the brothers Karamazov was actually like a, a text that really piqued this interest and opened up, uh, I don't know, like a possibility of what these doubts might mean or how 
your own life might change. I was wondering if you could talk about that. This part of the Brothers Karamazov is famous and is sometimes published independently called The Grand Inquisitor. But could you talk a little bit about how that particular text influenced and, and made space for you to explore your own questions around the Odyssey and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's a really crucial book for me. And I read it at precisely that time that I was having doubts and was really immersed in Reformed theology. And I, I actually read it for a class at Moody. They offered like one literature course when I was there. It was called Christ in the Novel. And it was a really great class. It really like opened my, my eyes to literature for the first time. I read Graham Greene. We read C.S. Lewis and read just that portion. I think we were only assigned the Grand Inquisitor in the chapter bef right before that, which is titled Rebellion, which was really like my mind opening to me. I guess just to set the stage if, if listeners aren't familiar with the past. So two brothers, Ivan Karamazov, his older sort of intellectual atheist brother, and then his younger brother, Alyosha, who is becoming, in the process of becoming a monk. And mm -hmm. So they meet and get engaged very quickly in this theological debate. And Ivan basically in that chapter lays out his objection to God's system of justice, which is... I, I would say it's one of the most powerful theodicies in, in Western literature, or maybe just like the most powerful theodicy that I've ever read. He says, I don't have to, I don't have time or space to focus on all the suffering that has visited all of mankind. So I'm just going to focus specifically on the suffering of children. Mm -hmm. so he tells all of these horrible stories that he's read, which actually Dostoevsky drew from Russian newspapers at the time. There were a lot of them were true stories about children who had been, you know, tortured and abandoned and killed and just this glimpse into really horrible suffering that, that takes place on earth. And so he basically says, how can, how can you worship a God who, who allows this to happen? And Ivan, he doesn't like, I, I think Alyosha like doesn't speak for the whole chapter. Hardly at all until the end. <laughs> uh, Ivan is like one yeah. of the self-aware Dostoevsky characters where he anticipates the objection before his brother can say it. He says, oh, I know what you're going to say. Everything turns out okay in the end. God's justice is, it's just in the end and it makes sense, but we just can't understand it as humans. And Ivan, um, and this is, I guess for me, this was like the exact problem that I had been running up against is having these objections and then being told, oh, but either it's all going to work out in the end or don't ask questions. We can't understand it. And Ivan says, okay, fine. Like he takes that as a starting point and says, maybe it's true that God's ways are higher than mine. And he actually, it's really interesting. And this is something I didn't understand until I went back and read the book later on, but he uses this analogy from contemporary physics, from the physics of 19th century uh, physics, where he talks about Euclidean geometry, which is this like type of geometry. It was like the, the very beginning in physics of getting this glimpse of quantum physics and sort of the mm. thing that there's a reality that our brains like just cannot fathom. So he says, maybe you can say God's justice is like Euclidean geometry. It's something that no human mind I have a human mind that works in three dimensions and this is working in some other dimension. And he says, but 
I don't accept that. I have to have something that makes sense to me as a human. I can't accept this other system because it's nonsense, basically. And to me, it's unjust and I have to trust my conscience. And to me, that was like a revelation, just like the courage of hearing somebody say that. Because for me, we've all this debate about either this is true or it's false. And he's saying, even if it's true, I don't accept it. Right. Um, So that, I think for me, was really, yeah, crucial. And just like maybe giving me permission or allowing me to articulate why I was leaving the faith and being willing to risk. Maybe it is true. And maybe I'm going to go to hell if I leave. But this is what I have to do. And I still think that this is the right decision regardless. Yeah. And just thinking back and knowing now what the time period was, if this was like in the shadow of, we're talking a couple of days before the 20 year anniversary of 9-11. If, the, if that was in the shadow and knowing that there were a lot of conservative Christians that were hawkish, that wanted to pursue war. So knowing that was like, the sort of background and knowing that all the suffering that comes with war was right there. Yeah. That's a really powerful text to read right in that type of situation. And, I, and there was, yeah, it was right. This was like the spring after 9-11. Mm, like that whole the lead up to the Iraq war was very much in the public consciousness. I've yeah. Time. And, and yeah, this also like just the whole culture taking this yeah, warlike and violent turn. Yeah, and again, evangelicals being largely on board with that. Bush was very popular at Moody. Um, right. That was, for me, that was a major part of my own sort of dissonance and first true, like, faith crisis, I think. Yeah. It was because I was on, my first full week of college was when 9-11 happened. And yeah, well, oh, wow. What an experience. So that was, that was right when you started. Yeah, I'm very curious now. <laughs> like, I know this is a tangent, actually, but I guess just because of the time in which we're speaking, what it was like for a lot of people that were actually on particularly Christian campuses at the time, because we ostensibly serve someone that's called the Prince of Peace, but then you have a, a lot of this support that very quickly fell in line behind a lot of militarism that ended up being under false pretenses, which yeah. is hard to square. <laughs> yeah. I remember there being a lot of a lot of apocalyptic rhetoric at Moody at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm trying to remember if there was actually a talk about the Iraq war on Moody's campus when I was there because I actually don't remember that being a part of the conversation when I was there. Yeah. At least among the people I was talking to, I remember there was a lot of stuff about, and even in our theology classes after, after nine eleven, like thinking about, I don't know how it tied into like end times prophecy and how I remember one professor going in sort of very harebrained tangent about how it's like Islamic end times prophecy and Christian end times prophecy all lined up and were like pointing to these same events. And nine eleven was like the the jump start to this, and. By the time that I think there was like a lot of more public conversation about Iraq, I was in Ecuador at that point. And gotcha. Yeah. It was interesting because I was working at this Christian radio station, but the people who were there were from all over the world. There were, you know, Christians working there from New Zealand and Australia and from Europe. And so it was actually a much more diverse group politically 
you know, Moody. Um, and yeah. yeah, I am like really grateful I was there during that time. I was living with uh, Canadian missionaries who were like very much against the the war. So, hmm. yeah. 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 Because in, in other circumstances, it's likely much more insulated for evangelicals at the time. Yeah. 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 Was it, what was it like at your college? Was there a lot of political... I, I was actually, so I, my school was really big on double majors, especially I was in the history department. So I was, I was a history major and a biblical literature major. And it was actually, now I can articulate, I couldn't as like an 18, 19 year old, but now I can uh, articulate it as my primary history professor was a Christian reconstructionist. Wow. So a lot of presuppositional stuff and then a lot of American exceptionalism yeah. and that really messed with what I was learning about yeah, the construction of the biblical text and things like that and the character of God <laughs> yeah. uh, as it's being uh, taught to me in the Bible classes. So those, a lot of the poli-sci history, pre-law type people were all also like college Republicans. And, and that was where I started to re reject it because I was there 2001 to 2005. So it was the entire gamut of those intense periods of yeah. Of the, of the invasion of Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq and everything else. But yeah, it was definitely a, a sort of singular experience, I think, in, in that regard to go through, to have your sort of faith be shaken by that. Yeah, it's got to be that. And I sense this too. There's this whole generation of evangelicals around our age who ended up like being really disillusioned by that mm -hmm. period who were like coming of age these and, and especially to be at a college where you're learning theology and it's all bound up with politics in a way mm -hmm. that's really difficult to separate what are we talking about here and what's the actual motivation <laughs> uh, it's like the right. like jesus or is is this your sort of political platform i don't know yeah and that to me that that's experiment and problem i'm still wrestling with even now but from a different perspective i guess <laughs> you know it's like yeah we thought yeah. it get worse but it did <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> i appreciate you going on that, that tangent with me because it, it is actually quite timely by the time this airs it'll likely be after the 20-year mark of 9-11 but it's still extremely timely so i appreciate you going into that detail with me Oh, yeah. It's interesting to hear your experience, too. And yeah, just wild that it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's it doesn't seem possible. But first Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth. And this podcast is just that here at the Speaking in Church podcast. We talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. I'd like to return uh, and, and talk more about your book. If you don't mind, I'd like to, to quote one part of it that I think will resonate. You write, Today, artificial intelligence and information technologies have absorbed many of the questions that were once taken up by theologians and philosophers. The mind's relationship to the body, the question of free will, the possibility of immortality. These are old problems, and although they now appear in different guises and go by different names, they persist in conversations about digital technologies, much like those dead metaphors that still lurk in the syntax of contemporary speech. 
all the eternal questions have become engineering problems. I really loved that passage. Uh, and I think it reflects the experience of someone who's inhabited more than one view of the world. And I was wondering if you could give some examples of how a lot of the theological questions that were explored in the West have already grappled with some of the sorts of questions that now are plaguing technologists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess my entry point into technology and to like becoming interested and for a period obsessed with conversations about technology happened during that period when I was, after I had left Moody, after I came back from Ecuador, I was living in Chicago, bartending, and I got introduced to transhumanism, which is this form of West Coast utopian, like techno-utopian ideology that emerged in Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s. And I I read Ray Kurzweil's book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, which would... Mm -hmm like mind-blowing to me because first of all I didn't know anything about technology reading about sort of these things like mind uploading and nanotechnology and brain computer interfaces these sort of like speculative futuristic possibilities that could happen and that Kurzweil was arguing were an an inevitability was just like fascinating and also I think I had grown up in this very millenarian form of Christianity that was very focused on the end times and the future. And Kurzweil and to some extent other transhumanists, it's very much an apocalyptic vision and it's very similar to Christianity. There's this idea, Kurzweil believes that, I think his original prediction was that by the year 2050, Mm -hmm. humans were going to be so completely merged with technology that we were going to become another species called post-human. We were going to basically be immortal. We would be able to upload our minds to supercomputers or to the cloud. We were going to just live in the sky as pure information, disembodied, and we weren't going to have any more suffering. We would leave behind the human corruptible flesh. And so, yeah, that idea was very appealing to me. It was basically promising everything that Christianity had promised minus the supernatural stuff. So this was all, there's a lot of disagreement about whether these technologies are possible or not and some of them are trying to be developed right now but right like like uh elon musk's Neuralink. Neuralink, and that very much comes out of this sort of transhumanist legacy i was very interested in those kinds of technologies but at any rate it doesn't require anything metaphysical it is theoretically possible that these technologies could come about someday and Yeah, so I went down the rabbit hole of like (laughs) techno-utopian visions of the future. I was on like message boards. I read a lot of books during that period about technology. And it wasn't until many years later that I was like, oh, this was just like a technological secular version of the Christian prophecies that I'd grown up with. That was one starting point for this book and thinking about that way in which sort of theological questions had found their way into these very technical discussions about emerging technologies. And sometimes to the point, it was really bizarre too, because if you get into sort of like the nitty gritty debates that these guys are having about like digital resurrection, whether you can bring somebody back from the dead, which is right. Ray which believe he wants to do it for his dad, right? Yeah, yeah. And he has like a yeah. storage unit somewhere with all his dad's artifacts and now he thinks he can recreate him. 
digital links. But yeah, there's they're debating the same questions that the church fathers debated in the first, the third and fourth century, like whether we were going to have this sort of like platonic spiritual afterlife, where, which where we were just information, just spirit, this more like Gnostic interpretation of the resurrection. Or on the other hand, do we need our bodies? Do you have to figure out a way to make the whole body immortal, not just the mind? Again, this is just like reiterating these these questions that were, I think, originally discussed in theological circles, in the theological context. And I see that in a lot of uh, different conversations about technology. I, I write in the book a lot about the question of free will, too, because, again, that was something I really struggled with being immersed in new Calvinism and and thinking through that, well, like, are we just deterministic beings? Do I really have a choice? And that question was like really unnerving to me too when I was struggling with my faith because it was like, oh, I could like see the path ahead of me that I was like about to leave. And it was almost like, is this just my, is it, am I not one of the elect? Is right. why I'm having these doubts is because I actually don't have control over them. That's a really troubling thought. <laughs> it becomes like a vicious circle because then the more doubts you have, it just confirms the fact that you're not one of the elect. And so mm-hmm. then that reaffirms the doubt. It's, yeah, it's just really awful. And yeah. And so again, and that's something that comes up too in philosophy of mind, for example, when a lot of philosophers argue that we don't actually have free will or that our free will or even our whole consciousness is an illusion to some degree. And it also comes up a lot with the rise of predictive algorithms, this idea that, you know, because we have so much data now and we have these super advanced AI systems that can process data and can understand the world on a level that we can't, that they actually might be able to understand and predict our actions better than we can. Uh, In your book, you also do quote uh, people like Kathy O'Neill, who wrote Weapons of Math destruction yeah um, which talks about the the weakness of those systems which is that they inherit historical biases uh, because the data sets that they use are built on systemic problems of racism and other types of oppression yeah this is the fundamental paradox of these technologies is that part of Mm -hmm. the rhetoric when they were being developed is oh they're going to be completely objective it almost like they're going to have this higher godlike morality that they'll be able to like transcend like humans we have all these biases and prejudices and these systems are going to be totally cold and logical and they'll be able to see the world in right. a democratic manner and it turns out yeah they're they're running on historical data so these are being i think probably the most the most uh, like disconcerting example is how these ai systems are being used in the justice system Mm-hmm. To make predictions about sentencing, things like that. So they'll predict whether they think a defendant is going to be likely to commit a crime again, like their recidivism score. Mm-hmm. And obviously they're relying on past court cases. And so if it's a person of color, if it's a person who's from a certain zip code, they're going to be reiterating the biases of judges in the past. And so you have these machines that are on one hand, supposed to be super intelligent, have this godlike intelligence, and also that are totally inscrutable. They're black box models. Nobody knows how they reach their decisions. And they're just making the same mistakes at a larger scale that we've been making for hundreds of years. And actually, that that is one of the themes that that really stood out to me, just in thinking of the way in which a lot of, I, I would say, I don't 
maybe the term like techno optimist, I guess, like someone who's very rosy sort of predictions about the future and what technology enables. Like the key example I think of is Kevin Kelly's work. He's written two books. He wrote one called What Technology Wants, mm-hmm. um, which the the final chapter describes the sense of extropy instead of an opposite force of universal entropy, that mm-hmm. things get more complicated and technology and humanity's ability to guide it will inevitably lead it to a positive type of thing. And it, it feels very like process theology. Yeah. It was like a sense of, of God cooperating and working and guiding and with his creation or its creation. And then later he wrote a book called The Inevitable, which is about in, inevitable technological progress. And also that was also very optimistic. It was published in 2015 or 2016. And I feel like a lot of that optimism after 2016 here in the United States feels a lot less earned. It's, it feels yeah. unearned. Yeah, it's interesting. And I actually haven't read Kelly's work. I'm familiar with it. But um, I, I think that you're right that there is something around like 2015 where there was this peak of optimism in mm-hmm. technology. And obviously, the 2016 election in the aftermath brought a lot of attention to social networks and the way in which, you know, that they could be infiltrated and disinformation and things like this. And then also, I think around that time, a lot of people who weren't in technology probably weren't paying attention to it as much, but there was this whole like deep learning revolution that was happening during that mm-hmm. time. And that basically is what gave us a lot of these systems that turns out they're very prone to bias. So I think that's dampened the optimism a bit as well, or at least tempered it, I would hope. I think people tend to be a little more skeptical now about the potential of those technologies or more aware of their limits. Yeah, and I think that the interesting thing, though, that comes across in your work is the way in which whether someone uses this sort of material or metaphor, which is the one of the guiding principles of, of this book and the essays there, is that sort of regardless of which metaphor, it feels like we drift back to these sort of questions of first things or what do you think is behind that impulse? Like we, you have on one side the Christian prophecies, like you mentioned. And not on the other, you have Kurzweil's materialist view of basically the resurrection or immortality. Mm-hmm. And you can even find connective tissue. And as you mentioned, I, I can never say his name out loud, Deschardin. Yeah, um, Deschardin. Yeah. yeah of, of the noosphere and the omega point and all of those types of Christian transhumanism. There's even people who use that term to describe themselves now. Yeah. I talked to some Christian transhumanists. That was, that was wild to me. It felt like inevitable because, yeah, it's, yeah, there, there is, like you said, there's a, there is a direct lineage. And that was one of the really satisfying things about writing this book was uncovering that. It's like mm-hmm. these coincidences, they can't be coincidences that these are so similar. Where's the link? And like all of the histories of transhumanism say, oh, we're like, we're carrying on the legacy of the Enlightenment. We believe in reason. It's, you know, largely atheists who are part of this movement. But if you look up like the etymology of the word transhuman, the first time it appears in English is in a translation of Dante's Divine Comedy. That's and, wild. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's in a passage just describing the resurrection when Dante is being transported to heaven and he's watching his flesh transform and he says words cannot describe this transhuman change and made up a new word, word in Italian, transhumanar 
and it was translated as transhuman in English. But beyond that, I, and then I think that's how it got into that term, got into Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, because he's basically the most recent. After Dante, I think he was like the next person, as far as the etymologies go, who used that word. And he had this, he very much had this sort of like proto-transhumanist view of the future. He thought that the biblical resurrection was going to happen through these global communication networks that were emerging at the time. And he was writing in, I think, the like the late 40s, early 50s, when this was all like very, it was really prescient, a lot of his ideas. Mm-hmm. And Marshall McLuhan, too, is somebody who's also written about the biblical resurrection. He was Catholic, wrote about sort of these Christian prophecies as being carried out by technology. Oh, really? They're, I didn't realize that McLuhan would use that because, uh, like, I'd, I have reread the medium as the massage many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I didn't know that I didn't know that he actually directly drew it. I knew it was important to him personally. I didn't know it worked, made its way into his work. I, I came to this knowledge also very recently. My friend, um, Nick Rapatrinson, he writes for the millions. He just wrote a, a biography of Marshall McLuhan that focuses on his Catholicism. And oh, wow. Influences work. Yeah. It's called Digital Communion. It's coming out soon, I believe. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And so, yeah, he was another like mid-century thinker who mm-hmm. was really into into technology and how it could fit in with biblical prophecy. So there is this direct lineage, and I trace how those Christian ideas basically got into, through this other thinker, Julian Huxley, who ended up secularizing these religious ideas. That sort of was the starting point for transhumanism. But yeah, so there there is that like direct lineage. And then there's also, I think really it's like a lot of it is these unconscious longings that we have as a species for immortality, for eternal life, these things that we believed in for centuries that were really central um, to our culture. And that then I think in a very secular landscape, what do you do with that hope or that longing? I think coming to terms with your mortality is very, it's very difficult, obviously. And it's something that I experienced, I think, in a much smaller form at a late age in my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. realizing for the first time that like, oh, there isn't this future. I am going to die. Um, and I think to some extent, maybe on a more subtle level, I think we're still dealing with that trauma as a culture. And that's actually one other theme that I wanted to touch on, which is this idea of enchantment and disenchantment. And I think maybe that whenever you have at least a somewhat enchanted world what, that is imbued with religiosity and that sort of thing. And in your book, I, f- I feel like there's, again, but animism on one side and panpsychism, is that how you say Yeah. Uh-huh. Panpsychism on the other. And there's this like pull uh, between that, making that, that transition so difficult. I was curious if you thought that whether today's religious fundamentalism, modern fundamentalism is a way to to reject that, to try to fight against that sort of, I don't know, existential despair. <laughs> um, um, to, fight, to fight against disenchantment or... Yeah, or to at least try to, maybe something like Calvinism is a way to use reason to ascribe intent. Another passage from the book that I, that I loved was, we are constantly obsessively enchanting a world with life it does not possess. Yeah. And in the context, I believe it was talking about this sort of subjective conscious awareness, consciousness was what you, what you meant by that. And I, 
And I'm just really curious your thoughts around that because some people in the fight for climate change and things say we need to stop being so self-centered, not be anthropocentric, be geocentric or biocentric or whatever it might be. I'm sorry that I <laughs> just put oh, yeah. a lot of different things, yeah. but feel free to take that whichever direction you'd like. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that there is this. Okay, so we usually talk about these like re-enchantment efforts, this desire to go back to the past. And I talk about re-enchantment in the book first through wanting to go back to this sort of like religious or Christian past with transhumanism as like the secular version of the Christian prophecies. And I also think there's this larger impulse to go back to a much older past or a not, you know, particularly like a non-Western past. This, and I think that this is bound up with what you were talking about too, this awareness that we're in the midst of a, a seismic global eco-crisis right now. And that we are coming to the end of this belief that we are the center of the world as humans and that we are on this sort of special pedestal just below the angels and above all other living things. And I think that there's a real, a real urgency and a hunger, rightly so, to abandon that and go back to some sort of earlier, less harmful way of living and maybe deceive the rest of the world is alive also. And so I talk about like in the book, there's some really exciting stuff going on in, in philosophy of mind right now. And one of them you mentioned is panpsychism, one theory, which was, is basically the idea that consciousness is fundamental to the universe, that everything is conscious to various degrees, going down to plants, animals, amoeba, bacteria, down the whole chain of being. And the idea that consciousness isn't just like you have it or you don't, but there's sort of these gradations and that trees and plants can be conscious as well. And this was an idea that was considered very much on the fringe of consciousness studies for a long time. Bertrand Russell was somebody who entertained this idea in the 20s before it fell out of fashion again. And just in the past 10 years or so, there's been a lot of prominent philosophers, including Philip Goff and David Chalmers, who have come out as panpsychists. And I find that really exciting. I think it's a really interesting way to get around sort of the mind-body problem. And it's a lot more attractive than like the alternative, which is to just say, oh, consciousness doesn't exist. It's an illusion, which has been a popular view for the past few decades. And I find that idea very attractive. I guess the question that I'm curious about in the book is, yeah, there's something really appealing about that idea, but is it appealing to us because there's some sort of fundamental truth? Is it true that the modern scientific worldview has left something behind? Like it's not a whole picture and we're trying to like figure out what that is now? Mm -hmm. Or is it wishful thinking, which is something I'm very attuned to as someone who is a former believer and knowing how easy it is to convince yourself of something that you really want to be true. And I guess the other side of that too, moving out of philosophy and mind into, into technology is that a lot of technologies now are passing these bars of intelligence and creativity that we had thought were like uniquely human areas, right? So like mm. AI can now write poetry and short stories. You can compose Bach-like compositions of music and do all these incredible things. And I think that 
the same impulse that leads a lot of people to be very open-minded toward like tree consciousness right now, for example. Oh yeah, sure. Like they're intelligent and conscious just like us. I think it's really easy to apply that same logic to machines or to these non-biological systems. And the lines get really blurry. And I guess I'm really interested in, I don't know that I have kind of a conclusive opinion about this, but I'm interested in the fact that those conversations are happening on one hand in tandem, but there's not a lot of dialogue between them, between the tech world and these emerging studies in plant consciousness. Ah, yeah. Um, And what does it mean that these technologies are owned by multinational tech corporate (laughs) that are like trying to exploit these technologies like social AI to bond with us and to make us emotionally connected to their products so that we'll buy more. Yeah, it gets really tricky. Yeah, that's why I was so appreciative of your book, because it just tries to draw on all of these different things in such a, a direct way. The only other place I've really come across this sort of direct engagement is through works of fiction. There's a Cory Doctorow book called Attack of the Nerds. I'm sorry, Rapture of the Nerds. And it's co-written, I think, by Charlie Strauss, but it's this post-human world. There's only like a billion people left on Earth and they and the rest live in cloud in the solar that orbits the solar system. And they're all transhuman or post-human uploaded beings. And yet there still exist religious fundamentalists and that being a reality. And then Wait, there's this is actually a book that somebody published. Oh yeah, it's fascinating. I, I think you'd really dig it. It's in three parts and yeah, it's very good. Oh, it sounds <laughs> fascinating. It, yeah. And then the other one that c- came to mind when I was reading your book was Neil Stevenson's recent book, Fowler, Dodge and Hell, which also deals with sort of uh, a digital afterlife, scanning bodies, connectome and all of that. And then a bunch of other things about technology and the way in which philosophy and religion also play a part. But I don't necessarily come across them in, in such a direct way. Yeah. Um, so I, Yeah, I don't read a lot of sci-fi. I probably should. I had this great idea for a novel because I started as a fiction writer mm-hmm. where I thought it would be great if there was a novel where like all of the fundamentalist Christians went and colonized Mars. And then they had this like faction where the Martian fundamentalists believed that was the rapture. <laughs> yeah, that's potent right there. Yeah. <laughs> like, but it's written it now. It sounds like a lot of people are interested in that intersection of yeah, yeah. You know, religion and, and science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's one facet of that particular book, but I'm actually rereading it because it's it just feels somehow accurate, even though it's fictional. Like yeah. this feels like a, a potential possibility. Yeah. And that's actually, uh, that actually leads into sort of what I'd like like to ask you the final question, which is we're on the cusp of another sort of technological paradigm shift in the next few years, like 95 to 2007, 1995 to 2007 was like the desktop and the early internet. And then 2007 to now is the mobile and smartphones. And then Facebook just announced with Ray-Ban their AR type glasses today and within the next few years people are expecting augmented reality to become the next sort of major computing platform Mm. so all the all the big companies are jockeying for position but with that in mind and just knowing that we actually carry these metaphors forward with us whether they're religious um, or scientific and 
in the last few years, we've seen like very strong worldviews at, at play. What do you see as far as like potential possibilities for the future and the way in which we can talk about how philosophy informs our technology and religion effectively uses technology when you look at the ways in which evangelicals for decades have been early adopters of technology. Mm. It's fascinating and sometimes frightening <laughs> because of their goals. So yeah, just w what are your thoughts in looking, looking to the next few years, how that might play out? Yeah. This is maybe the place where I, I am not terribly confident in my outlook for the future, just because I think that the developments in technology in these past few years have been unexpected in a lot of ways. Man, it would have been difficult to predict even just a few years ago. Something like machine learning, which has like fallen out of fashion for a long time, made this huge comeback. I do think, I, I think that the question about what makes us human and finding metaphors or different ways to talk about that is going to become really important because I do think we have this history of, and this isn't even, in a way it's inevitable, like we can't understand what it means to be human without comparing ourselves to other things. So mm -hmm. I, this is where the book title comes from is, are we, I think for a long time, the dominant metaphor was that we're made in the image of God. So this idea that we alone have reason and that makes us in some sense divine and then more modern view which is that we're animals and then the emergence of the brain computer metaphor or these other sort of mechanistic metaphors for human nature so this idea that like our minds are basically computational mm -hmm. i think that changes obviously we need metaphors to understand the world we i don't think we could think or use language without them. But I think that they also, because they're so intimately bound up with thought and language, they change how we see the world. They change how we see ourselves. Mm -hmm. And yeah, for a friend of mine asked a while ago, like, oh, what is like the next metaphor going to be? Because I talk in the book about how oh, in the 18th century, we compared ourselves to clocks or mills and now it's computers. It's what is the next thing mm -hmm. going to be? And I think that's really difficult to predict, but I do feel like we're on the cost of a paradigm shift that there's going to be something else. And that I do think that those things that we consider uniquely human, they're already falling by the wayside. I think for the last 70 years or so, we've said, oh, creativity, maybe the past 50 years, I guess it was after like a Deep Blue won the chess match mm -hmm. um, against Gary Kasparov. I think that it switched from like humans are uniquely intelligent and they have reason as to now where it's we're creative, we have emotional intuitiveness, things like that. I think that AI is going to catch up with us in those categories. It already is in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so what's next? What are we going to, what are we going to focus on as what makes us distinct? And I don't know, I don't know what the answer is to that, but it's a conversation I'm interested in. Yeah. Yeah. I think your book is a great addition to that conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people find your book? Uh, where can they find anything else you might write or find you online? Anything you want to plug? <laughs> yeah. Uh, my book is available in all bookstores. I encourage people to buy from independent bookstores if you have one mm -hmm. in your town or through a site, IndieBound. 
that orders from independent bookstores. It's also on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, et cetera. And yeah, I have I have a website. It's just meganogiblin.com where I post new work occasionally. I write. I'm still doing a lot of like freelance work. So I write for the New Yorker and Harper's and the New York Times. And I, I write an advice column for Wired Magazine called Cloud Support, mm-hmm. um, where I answer people's like existential questions about digital technologies. So send me a question if you have one. <laughs> Megan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Blake. It was a pleasure. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.